welcome to Waiting for Review, a show about iOS development and the Apple ecosystem. From Wellington, New Zealand, I'm Dave Wood, and joining me from Devon, England, is Dave Knott. I, I was on a Skype call yesterday with my mum, and it just kept notifying me as everybody was chatting in our general chat. Oh. Because um, I, was, I was on my iPad for that call. I'd I, I put... Um, well, I put Do Not Disturb on. I tried to turn you know, everything else off uh, from Control Center, and I was still getting notifications. I don't really know why. I, I mean, like uh, Slack's notifications are just a pure mystery to me. Mm. I, I, I just don't. I don't. I don't even know how they work because, like, there has been several times where you've messaged me and I haven't got a notification. Right. And then I think, like, it's the time of week where normally. We'd have said something to each other by now, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just go and check the app, and then sure enough, there's a message from you just sat in our yeah. you know, thing. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I remember I saw a tweet probably a couple of years ago now where um, someone said, before you make a snarky response about not getting a notification on Slack, maybe look at this, and it was this massively complex flow diagram about what does and doesn't constitute a push notification. Yeah. And to be fair, it looked really complex, but nevertheless, if it... If you get an experience like I'm having, then I kind of feel like I can reserve the right to complain about it. Yeah, that's a bit hit and miss, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I just feel like Slack is something I have to actively monitor, almost like my emails, because I don't have my emails push yeah. at me purely because I want to keep emails in their little box. Um, I, I, I'm in control of them rather than the other way around. I like the fact that email is like that. I like keeping it in its box. So I'm exactly the same on that one. I don't have push turned on for my email. Yeah, I remember at my old job, we got some exchange system that we were on briefly. And, you know, one of the selling points is, oh, it's really good because it turns your emails basically into like text messages and that you get a push notification if you want it every time you get an email. And I started Mm. off by being like, yeah, this is awesome because I can be super on the ball and super responsive. And it, it just it was awful it was truly yeah. awful because there's just like no escape from it and then you know you, if you get in like 50 emails a day which was a fairly light day on email for me i would say in that role that that was not good to have that like buzzing in your pocket every second and no it turns it turns everything into this sort of modal thing doesn't it and then as well as that it's like it does that at all times of day as well yeah, and I, I was always always a bit unhappy about having work emails on my personal phone as well. Yeah, that always felt like those two things at odds with each other. There, I mean, if I was like a contractor, fair enough. I I, I think that's probably something I would l- learn to live with. Yeah, but yeah, when it's just like a jobby job, yeah, don't particularly want my phone buzzing at me at like half ten at night, even even if it's not requiring my attention. Not something like a server's gone down or something, but just like just an email that's part of a conversation that's going on that's not urgent or anything, but it still kind of takes you out of what you're actually doing outside of work and puts, yeah. puts you into like work mode again. It's it's about the right time and the place. I mean, I don't have my work email on my on my my personal phone, you know. So and, and actually, I don't have it set up on um, on any of my devices or anything at home either. So when my laptop is left in the office email is left in the office so all of that is is there and you know i, I walk out of the office and, and, that, and that's that it's waiting for me when i get back in if there's something urgent i can get into the email box because it's all based through google suites and I, I can log in through the browser or whatever that's fine uh and i have slack 
turned on as well. So I do have Slack on my phone. But then with Slack, I've got notifications uh, turned off. Um, it's, it's, they're, they're only on for, um, for the window that I'm in work. So Slack's not going to bother me during the evening. And I think it probably tells people I've snoozed the notifications and they can actually then press the thing to say, send the notification anyway. Yeah, I get that a lot with you because of the time difference, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think I may get a push if they, if they press that button and carry on. So I, I sort of feel like if there's a route there if people really want to get in touch with me, you know, out of hours, and that, that's fine. I don't mind that because, you know, there's, there's a, a gate if you like, that people have got to get through to, to do so. And I sort of figure if something, somebody is that motivated, then I probably want that message. But equally, people have got my, my personal number and that sort of thing as well. And I never mind if somebody wants to get in touch in that way. Again, it doesn't bother me because it means there's something that is urgent enough to require it. But what, what I've had in the past is I've had managers who've just sort of been like, you know, this is like old, old job. I'd, I would have managers who would commute to work so they would drive like an hour and a half or whatever up the country to to the Leicester office you know do a day's worth of work drive drive all the way back down to wherever they lived and then come seven eight o'clock at night they would log, log back on their emails and start firing off you know directives for the next day or this that and the other or stuff that they thought was sort of oh let's look at this let's do this so if you allow that route of, of input from email or whatever, you never get a break because they're not taking a break. I, I can't work like that. That's that's not fair. And there also comes um, a point where you almost need to train the people that are emailing you not to expect a response because I found yeah. that the one time I responded at like half ten at night, the emails became more. And yep. then it's kind of like you get get a comment the next day like oh well i did email you last night at, you know ten forty. <laughs> it's like yeah i know you did and i didn't respond because it was ten forty <laughs> in the evening um like i started using a yeah. plugin i think at one point um that allows you to write the email and kind of get the thought out of your head and sort of like a tick in the box like i i've dealt with this email but it won't send it until like i don't know some random time in the morning like 13 minutes past nine to kind of give the impression that oh, I've just got into the office and your email was one of the first things I did. Yeah. And then it kind of gets a behavior going with the people that are emailing you. Yes, you can email me at half 10 at night, but you ain't going to get a response until tomorrow. And actually that can kind of help. But Yeah, which is exactly the sort of thing. That's the sort of thing that those managers that I used to work for should have done. You know, by all means, catch up on your, your email or start your itinerary for the next day whenever you want. But those emails, they should be, you know, put in the, in the hopper and scheduled for the next morning, you know, send, send them at, at eight o'clock on the dot or whatever. Yeah. It's a funny old beast email, isn't it? And I find Slack to some extent goes some way to replace it, but that in itself brings its own set of problems. It's almost that Slack becomes this huge distraction. It's certainly yes. how I found it when I was using it as part of a team when I was developing like as the day job. Um, yeah, just having like the general channel popping away at you all day and different channels of different projects. And then you'd get people yeah. be like, well, I did put it in Slack. And it's like, yeah, but that was like 80 messages ago and I didn't see it because I was like busy working. And um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It almost just turned into a place where people would either just goof off or 
they would say something in a channel and then be like, that's me exonerated kind of thing. Like, I, I put it in Slack, therefore I don't need to it's communicate on the record. it in any other way. Yeah, it's on the record. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've kept my nose clean, basically. And I just never found it to be that effective. Now, to me, that, that reminds me again of of email, though. If I think back sort of 10 years back or whatever um, into my old sort of corporate life, people would do that on email chains as well you know they would fire off this email that sort of covers their their back in one way or another you know to say oh well this is this is what i have said and copy their manager or a couple of other people in or whatever but if you looked at the email chain it would end up buried back yeah like you know 10 emails back in this long chain or whatever that nobody's really going to bother to read because everybody just reads the top one that they've had so that's that's great that covers you in that moment um, but then, yeah, it ends up just like that, that Slack scenario. Oh, well, I said on email. Yeah, you said on email while I was on holiday, you know, context here or whatever. And, you know, that email's now a week old and I've had several hundred since. I guess it's a, a, a similar sort of problem. And I think with, with either way around, and the, the point I have is that certain sorts of communication shouldn't be left to that sort of thing. So, for example, if you're working on a on a, a project and you're working as, as part of a team and then there's important details that are technical requirements or aspects of the project or whatever, commenting about that in Slack is not where that should live. You know, like requirements should not live as, as parts of a, a, a Slack conversation. That's where they can start, you know, by all means, just the same as they would start if you were having a, a real-life meeting or a, a teleconference or whatever. Um, but then when that becomes a, a requirement or a thing that everybody needs to know that's an aspect of a project, it needs to be documented and it needs to live somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that winds me up no end. It's just, you know, Slack is not documentation. Yes, you've said it, but that, that doesn't count. Yeah, it doesn't count any more than you saying it in the hallway sort of thing. It, it, it's great, but yeah, you can't rely on it for, for trapping that important detail. And, and there are places in, that that sort of detail should live as well. And, you know, any project that's being run uh, run well is probably going to be using some sort of ticket management system for issues, for example, like Jira or whatever. And there's potentially going to be, if you're using something like that, there's going to be something like Confluence or whatever, which can be used for documenting. So, you know, there's, there's usually a, a correct tool for a lot of these things to sort of live in. Mm. Um, it's just getting people to realize, uh, yeah, okay, I know you've said it on Slack, but that now needs to become a thing over here. And you're going to need to spend, you know, the extra few minutes or whatever to to turn that into a ticket or add it to the requirements or whatever. Uh, yeah, and nobody likes sort of repeating themselves. But yeah, the problem with Slack is is, is it's not really repeating yourself if nobody's actually going to read what you've said. So, yeah, perennial <laughs> problem and, and a big, big bugbear of mine, actually. Wow, how did we get onto this conversation? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, email's no good so, and neither is Slack is our conclusion. No, 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 they're great in context. <laughs> great in context. So, yeah, Slack is, for me anyway, I sort of see Slack as chatter and it's good for, for getting the conversation out and, and having an asynchronous conversation during... Uh, it's asynchronous but it's not 
right? So it's asynchronous and effective. It's asynchronous through the workday. But you kind of tend to accept that most people in a team or whatever will have seen what you've said during the course of that day. And then kind of beyond that, you've probably got to accept that it's buried, buried in the threads. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like the conversation needs to start in Slack or email, but then the result of that conversation needs to sort of turn into something more formal, like you were saying something in Jira maybe or or Confluence. Um, Yeah. Yeah, rather than sort of being part of a conversation in Slack. Yeah, the end result needs to be kind of formalized in some way for it to be effective. Yeah, and equally, even when you're talking in Slack... The way people talk there, because it's conversational and that sort of thing, I've seen it before where people can sort of think that one thing means something else. You know, so it's easy to kind of misinterpret after a point, especially when you've got a blend of people or whatever who may have, you know, they've, they've come from different countries, so they might be using English in slightly different ways or those sort of factors as well. I think it can be quite good to take something that's a requirement out of that environment and then formalize it. Because when you do that, it, it solidifies it just that little bit more. And then it lets people kind of take a look at that requirement and, and sign off on it. Yeah. So I'm not sure that, um, yeah, Slack is not documentation. It, it sort of comes back to, really. Did you want to talk about that Intel thing that you sent to me? The Intel thing. So that was um, that was a tweaked wasn't it that was off the back of something that um that marco armand had, had tweeted about uh yeah i've got it here in slack actually after our conversation about being <laughs> a documentation <laughs> tool yeah so um paul uh paul haddad i think is it tapbot uh, who one of yep. the guys who works with tapbot um yeah he tweeted something about a leaked intel roadmap and then yeah marco armand retweeted it with with comment but yeah, if this is true, it doesn't look great for a ten nanometer Intel chip anytime soon, really, when you I'm looking at the yeah. the top row of this uh roadmap on the H series, which is kind of the range of chips I'm interested in, purely because they're the ones that are likely to go in a MacBook Pro. Um what are we on now? We've got Coffee Lake, um, then we've got a Coffee Lake refresh, then we've got Comet Lake which remains at 14 nanometers, which is going to extend all the way through to 2021. And then you've got Rocket Lake, which is still going to remain at 14 nanometers. It's going to continue into Q4 of 2021. And, you know, beyond that, who knows? Yeah, if, if this is true, <laughs> that's really bad for, uh, for Intel. Because, I mean, how long would that mean they've been stuck at 14 nanometers? Yeah, so looking at, at Wikipedia, 14 nanometers was 2014. 2014? Crikey. Yeah. So yeah, that's going to be nearly seven years they've been stuck at 14 nanometers then. That's not good. I guess it's that thing, isn't it? It's, it's the idea that uh, Moore's Law and, and all of that is sort of slowing down, isn't it? And that these these sort of advances are, are ever kind of further out of reach, the sort of lower, lower down that we get. I guess, but then like TSMC, who manufacture the Apple A series chips and a load of other chips, no doubt. I think they even um, do the fab for AMD. I have to double check that; I could be wrong. But they've been at seven nanometer for for years, and rumor yeah. has it that the next A thirteen chip or whatever is going to be five nanometers. Right um, now, I was reading the other day uh, quite an in depth article. 
if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes, basically saying that sort of Intel's t- 10 nanometer is roughly equivalent to TSMC 7 nanometer because it kind of depends what you're measuring, depends which, <laughs> to, you know, whether you call it 10 or whether you call it 7, it kind of part of, partly depends on what it is you're measuring, like where you start from and where you finish the measurement. So, right. Um, but the general consensus was TSMC 7 nanometer is kind of equivalent to Intel's 10, 10 nanometer if they ever ever ship it but i think the problem is is that they just can't get the yields so when they do a you know like a big wafer just a huge number of chips on that wafer is that they're just not coming through is is kind of what i'm reading on the flip side of that if we if we if we were to believe this is true in that we're going to be stuck at 14 nanometers with intel until 2021 what does that mean for this 16 inch macbook pro that's been rumored probably probably means it could come sooner in this year rather than later um, it would kind of mean that Apple would want to get, if they're making them with Intel chips, then they would want to get that done sooner rather than later from the point of view of them replacing them with ARM chips later on, I guess. Yeah, I mean, partly what I was thinking was, you know, when we look at when we're realistically likely to see an announcement of this rumoured 16-inch MacBook Pro, kind of dub-dub is the obvious one, and secondary to that, possibly the October hardware event that they quite often do. Yeah. Now, if they're going to stick with a 14 nanometer chip, then no real reason why it can't be dubbed up because the 14 nanometer chips are already out. Um, There's not a lot to wait for. No, and I think there's been a new uh, a new 9th gen H-series chip that's just come out in the last week or two that we're starting to see come into devices now. Um, you can go up to an 8-core i9 with that and I think it's even got like a low power mode that it can go into. So if you're just doing light, light usage stuff, you can still get like a 10 hour battery life on a eight core i9 chip. And that's a 14 nanometer chip. So yeah, that, that sounds fine. The only thing that I was thinking that might mean we see it later in the year is if Apple are like, okay, this is going to be our 10 nanometer MacBook, MacBook Pro. And if you read the, the news and believe the news, then you're kind of looking at Q4 before we're going to see any 10 nanometer Intel chips, if we see them at all. So that's the kind of thing that made me think, well, maybe Apple would delay the release until their October event. And it may be then that, you know, you you can order on Friday, but we're shipping on, you know, some random date in November. So, you know, based on whenever they can get the chips from Intel. And it used to be at one point that that Apple would kind of get... um, I can't remember whether they used to get the chips sort of ahead of other people or, or what, but, you know, the consignment that is for Apple is sort of this separate thing. Right. So, you know, I mean, like, the the roadmap is one thing, and that'll dictate when stuff is generally ready, but it kind of makes me wonder, like, was that when the relationship was better or whatever, if I'm, if I'm remembering that right, that, that Apple wouldn't not necessarily get the chips first, but... but um, you know, the, the chips that go into the MacBooks would not necessarily be the same exact spec that was going into anything else. And then you would sort of see those filter through a, a little bit later. You know, they're, they're in the Macs and then they would be in, in PC laptops sort of six or 12 months later. Yeah, I guess when you say that, I think back to the original MacBook Air announcement uh, where Steve Jobs brought the Intel CEO out on stage and they kind of said that we've been working together on this chip that powers mm. the MacBook Air and the MacBook Air wouldn't be possible without this collaboration. Um, 
I guess that was when their relationship was at its peak because it wasn't an awful lot longer that it wasn't too long that they've been with Intel at that point. I don't think. Um, and obviously now it's a, a very different relationship. I think it's probably very uh, quite strained at this point. I mean, if if what annoys me is that if this uh, leaked roadmap is true and we're not going to get ten nanometer until realistically twenty twenty two, that's uh, that's bad. That's a bad relationship, I think, from Apple's point of view, and also the fact that Intel kind of keep kicking the can down the road. It's like, oh yeah, it's going to be the end of this year, and then this year, the end of this year comes and goes, and it's like, oh, it'll be like Q three next year, and then it's all oh, Q two the following year, and Yep, I, I almost just don't know what to believe now when I when I see like a, a, an Intel thing. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a bit sad, really, because that that I, culture is very very much at odds with Apple, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I feel like I used to follow like Intel chips quite closely and be quite interested in it and take an interest in it, but now I'm just like, I I don't even know. I don't even know what they're up to. Like, is, is it Coffee Lake? Is it Coffee Lake Refresh and this new Comet Lake thing? It's like. I just feel like it's not worth my my time bothering to keep up with it anymore. Um, it, it'll just be what it'll be, and it'll probably be delayed. It's no wonder, is it? Apple want to make their own chips, really. When you when you see this this kind of thing leak, no. And you know, you look at the iPad Pro, the the benchmarks that thing can get, it's uh, it's quite staggering. Yeah, it feels very much like it's in their reach now to sort of start expanding what they do with the ARM chips and bringing those across to to the MacBooks and to desktop machines, even as well. I know I sort of feel like I don't hundred percent know enough about the, the the way the chips work or the extent of what they're they're capable of there. But looking at, at pure benchmarks, you know what the the, the latest chips in the uh, in in the ten S and the ten R and and the iPad Pro uh, can achieve. It looks to me like well, sure, bring it on, hook that up to um, a, a regular power supply rather than a battery where we care about you know maintaining battery life take away some of those constraints stick a few more wafers together or whatever it takes to sort of make a super core you know and bring it on um, that's that's kind of what i want to play with yeah yeah it's, it's going to be a long road isn't it because even if apple announced something arm based at wwdc this year it's going to be probably a good three years until most or all if you know most of the product line is then migrated over to it. Um, yeah, and I would imagine that the first thing to get it is going to be the twelve-inch MacBook because that—that's the machine. It feels that about to, right. Yeah, yeah, and probably the stuff that we're interested in is likely going to be the last sort of stuff to get ARM chips, perhaps. So when I bought my um, when I bought my Mac Mini. I had that realization that this might well be the last Intel Mac that I buy. It probably is. Hmm. You know, if I sort of think about like the lifespan of the, the Mac Mini and what I'm hoping to get out of it, uh, it's essentially a machine for the next two or three years for development for me. And then I'll probably be looking at getting whatever MacBook Pro is around at that time, I reckon, at the end of it. Um. And then, you know, the Mac Mini becomes a, a build server or whatever at that point. That, that's kind of my rough plan for it. Right. And I, th- I suspect that MacBook Pro will be one of this this coming generation of ARM machines, to be honest with you. And and hopefully with a, a working keyboard, that's <laughs> that's a bit of a thing. Um, 
Yeah. So, but, but had that sort of realization setting up the Mac Mini that yeah, this could be my my last Intel machine, and that that's kind of a weird feeling. Like, if you sort of think way back, did people kind of have that realization with their their Power Macs and their the G fives and all of those machines? Because I don't think it was clearly that obvious at that point that um, that Apple were going to Intel away from Power PC. I sort of feel like the, I don't remember that era clearly enough because it's so far back and, and I wasn't into Apple in the same way back then. Um, but I sort of feel like that the, it wasn't as understood that that was the direction by everybody who was sort of into the platform at the time. So actually being able to kind of look ahead and sort of go, mm, these are probably the last machines of this sort and have that sort of thought. Um, it kind of feels like that, that might be quite a unique thing to this era. Yeah, I, I, I still do. I worry about my lack of deep knowledge on, on the topic in a way, because like you just said, something you just said uh, back then just struck a chord to me that it's easy to see a synthetic benchmark on an iPad Pro and just think, put that in a Mac and put more power through mm-hmm. it, more cores. Um, I feel like I don't understand the intricacies of ARM CPUs versus Intel CPUs to actually know if you know an ARM-based MacBook Pro is something we should be wanting. Yep. Um, there was a time where I did understand it a little bit more, probably back in my sort of days where I was studying sort of RISC versus CISC CPUs, that kind of thing, reduced instruction set versus complex instruction set. So yeah, it's whether that can translate into a into a, like a, the the high end kind of desktop experience. Yeah, I, I I feel like it's easy to sit here on a podcast and be like, yeah, give me an ARM MacBook Pro, that's what I want. But it's like, is it actually what I want? Do I properly understand it? Probably not. I feel like I. I should do a bit more learning about it, actually. Given that, I mean, I suppose Apple are gonna—they're gonna do it. I think one way or another, they probably will move to their own silicon. But yeah, I, I just feel like I should know more, really, about about it. Yeah, I, I feel like every time I discuss it on here, there's like a little bit of me that, like, if anyone asks me a, a serious question about why do you think an ARM CPU is better than an Intel CPU, I'm just kind of like, oh, I don't know, because it's ARM, and ARM is almost like this now. Kind of mis- it's like an, an unquestioned gold standard in some ways. Yeah, um, because yeah. because it's just it's. I think for me, it's because it is the type. Of, it's the chip that is within Apple's control, and it's actually being in Apple's control that I'm after more than necessarily what the chip does. I mean, there's nothing you stopping know, them Apple, coming out of an x86 style chip, is there? Really? If they no, could just design one themselves. I guess so. Yeah. Um, so is it the arm again, or is it you know, the appleness that we want? For me, it's the appleness, I think, and it's not necessarily needing to wait for Intel's roadmap and that side of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I sort of feel like when they hit that moment as well, and it's all in their control on the Mac, then I'm hoping that I'm going to sort of see that translate into uh, speed benefits and that sort of tight coupling with the OS that we get over on iOS as well. Yeah, because that's basically so, what I want. I'm not too worried about whether it's ARM or whether it's x86. What I want is that, like you say, that really tight coupling of silicon software and, you know, all coming together. Um, you know, like when they did the iPhone announcement last year, they said, oh, we got like, you know, silicon to, you know, we developed silicon to actually make image processing better. Yep. Um, that's the kind of thing I want to start seeing. So, you know, like for 
common tasks on a Mac. I, I don't know, even like Swift compilation, there's like silicon that's there to aid Swift compilation for developers or, you know, video exporting or just something like that. Yeah. You know, something they can point to on stage and be like, this is the reason why us making our own chip is a big deal because it actually helps with X, Y, and Z rather than just we're throwing megahertz at a wall, just trying to make stuff faster for the sake of it. Exactly. So I could, I could sort of see, well, you, know, you, you buy an I, iMac Pro, for example, and it's one of these these sort of you know arm based Apple silicon machines, and you can imagine that it's you could potentially be buying one that is optimized for 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 video encoding. That that could be a thing, you know, like it's got however many general purpose cores, and then it's backed up by another set of of, of coprocessors or whatever that are specifically for encoding certain types of video. Yeah, and that might be one of the reasons that it is the pro machine because it has all of all of what the other machines have plus, and that plus could be this very dedicated dedicated silicon. Uh, so that that could be a, a route that they take as well, which it, it would be that'd be quite an Apple thing to do. I think if I think about it, you know, we've got this machine and it is optimized very very specifically in this way. Um, and I. I think that would be a positive i mean they'll, they'll charge a, a handsome price for it and and this this won't be cheap you uh, know uh, i don't think this is going to lead to massively cheaper machines um but if it leads to better machines and machines that are doing these things that we like to use them for in you know better ways then i'm I'm for that that's great yeah and uh, and we, we talked briefly last week about how like programs executing um on on your machine um and taking up processor cycles and that sort of thing has an impact on to energy costs and i, I kind of wonder as well if you've got machines that are more dedicated to what they do does that translate into general sort of energy reduction and that side of things oh, isn't there a team now at apple that's kind of working in tandem with the mac pro development where they are kind of looking at those kind of micro-level optimizations. Um, I think one example they gave, where I think it was when Matthew Panzerino went out for his kind of press tour of what the Mac Pro team are up to. Uh, they've got this team that kind of looks for any optimization possible. I think there was one example with like Final Cut, when you click on a certain drop-down and then go to something else, there's like a small lag in between you clicking it and the thing you want happening to happen. Right, and this team is then that their job is to kind of track this down and just make it better, because <laughs> the theory being that if all these pros are using these things to get their jobs done, then if they can save like two seconds here, then you multiply that out by how many times that pro would do that in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year, then you're saving yep. all this time. Um, so it makes me wonder if you know that that could be the kind of thing that Apple are going to maybe do. Um, so I did start thinking again. I know, I know we've spoken about this, but the other day I was driving home and I was like, "Why is the Mac Pro taking so long? <laughs> if, if they're just going to, you know, put a load of Xeons in it, ECC RAM, SSDs, you know, make a nice aluminium box, surely it could have been done by now." And then you hear about this uh, sort of pro hardware optimization team. I forget the actual term for the team, and it's like, well, maybe maybe that is where Apple Silicon comes into it with these like this really tight integration. And I don't know. Maybe we could. I I just cannot wait to see what this Mac Pro is going to be. 
Um, yes. Part of me thinks if it's taken this long, it, it's got to be something pretty damn special. Or at least a pretty damn different to what we're expecting it to be, the whole modular thing that's been going on. I know a lot of people think it's going to be like, you know, stacking 10 Mac minis on top of each other or something like that, but... Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> no, me neither. But um, yeah, just um, I just can't wait to see what it is because I feel like there's just like 5 to 10% of me is thinking, is it going to be an ARM-based machine? Is this going to be the first ARM Mac? Almost to yep. prove a point that if we can do it on this, we can do it on everything and look how amazing it is. And we've got this kind of pro hardware team that is kind of looking at really small optimizations to make the whole system sing as one. And that kind of feels to me like, again, that's kind of Apple firing all cylinders there. That's kind of their secret source, isn't it? Is getting everything on the same page, perfectly optimized. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I just think if that team exists, are they just doing kind of small optimizations within applications? Uh, I think with with that example they found, it was like a driver issue that was causing that stutter. Right. Um, and so they went and patched the driver and fixed the driver and, you know, problem solved kind of thing. Um, part of me wonders if there's something a bit more going on than just fixing up little bits like that. Yeah, and if they're actually getting into to greater depths with it all or not. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I just can't wait to see. what. I mean, surely we're gonna, that we're going to see something in like a month or so at Dub Dub. I hope so. I really hope so. It's just dawning on me that it's only a month away now. That's uh, I know. That's going to come around quick. I can't wait. I really can't wait. Part of me is going to be a little bit sad if they come out and it's like, oh, and we've got the new Xeon whatever's in it. I'm like, no. <laughs> just like, yeah, What what is it going to be? I, who knows? And and not only yeah. that, what, what, it, what it turns out to be could then inform us of, you know, what, other Mac hardware is likely to be sort of projected over the next two to three years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very much so. It's something that I'm just so looking forward to sort of finding out, really. I've, I've got you know, all manner of, of small theories and this, that, and the other, and pet ideas that I would like to see sort of happen. You know, like I, I kind of feel like, well, maybe modular is just um, an expanded eGPU chassis, for example. USB-C is perhaps as modular as we need to be at this stage. Uh, all the way through to, like you say, is this going to be ARM-based machine, um, many, many cores, or, or, or what? You know, at the moment, we don't know. They promised something over just over two years or so ago, uh, said that something was on its way, and... I guess there's there's also an element of me worries. Well, have they actually decided to can it as well? That that's in the mix. So oh, I sort I of feel like, that. well, I, I doubt it. Um, but it's still there at the back of my mind, especially as you know we're now even further into them selling the iMac Pro and and that sort of thing as well, which was always a machine that I think they wanted to replace the the Mac Pro with anyway. Uh so yeah, I, I kind of wonder. Well what are we going to see i'm excited for all these other reasons and i'm just looking forward to to dub dub hopefully to get some insight into that um and to sort of see you know actually more so than than the uh the macbook pro to be honest with you um announcements on the macbook pro will be cool to see but really all i want to see there is that they fix the keyboard you know and they progressed it in some fashion uh but the 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 Mac Pro is where I'm really really curious. 
<laughs> and the irony is, is that neither of us are probably going to buy that. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Th- that's the whole point of a flagship, right? It's aspirational and and it sets the tone for the sort of technology that will trickle down into the other machines and and the direction that things are going. So I, I can I can live with that. I'm just so curious. Okay, we'll call that a wrap. If you've enjoyed today's show, it'd be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes or if you could leave us a recommendation in Overcast by hitting that star button, that will help us reach even more like-minded people. Um, Also, we have our Slack channel. We'd love to invite you to join. Our hope is it can be a really great place for fellow developers to come and hang out. If you'd like to join, uh, just leave us a message on Twitter at WFR Podcast and we'll get you signed up. So, Dave, before we run off, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at DWRoboHeads. That's RoboHeads spelled with a Z. And you can find my apps at RoboHeads.com. Again, that's RoboHeads spelled with a Z. How about you, Dave? You can follow me online at DaveNot.co.uk or on Twitter, I'm at underscore DaveNot. 